Overdrive here at the Sunday Wire. We're broadcasting live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and at 21stCenturyWire.com. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Fantastic segment just previously with our guest, uh, award-winning journalist Habib Bata uh, from Beirut here. And if you had a chance to listen to that, fantastic. If not, uh, go back and listen on the archive. Uh, it was a tremendous segment, and uh, wow, what a lot of insight, the sort of thing that uh, we only get if we're here in town. So uh, thank you to our listeners and the people who uh, we, we lifted up. We're, we're riding on your wings, basically, uh, <laughs> being able to do this show uh, in the Middle East. So we do appreciate your support and uh, your encouragement as well for months now. So that's... Uh, so much appreciated from ACR and 21st Century Wire. So, and you know who you are. And we read those names out at the beginning of the show. Now, our next guest is uh, an investigative uh, journalist, and he's also editor of his own website. He's joining us from the west side of the main island of Japan. I've just given away who this is. If you follow his work, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. This is James Corbett, editor of the Corbett Report. James, thank you for joining us this Sunday. Thank you so much for having me back on, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. You know, yeah, likewise, James. And, you know, the reason I, I got in touch with you, James, because I saw immediately uh, you put out a video fairly quickly uh, on the Panama Papers. And this is like all the rage uh, throughout most media outlets. And uh, when I first saw this story, you, I think you and I were thinking similar things. <laughs> I was like, well, what's the big deal here? Um, I see a lot of uh, fireworks, but I was looking for the beef, and I'm still searching for it. Uh, there's, there's, this story has spun off into so many different directions in a week. And I brought you on because I know you've been following it, and you've got a fairly good take on it. Um, my take on it uh, on the Panama Papers is that... Uh, and I've said this on another show this afternoon. It's I, I think it's a limited hangout. I don't even think this you could call this a leak. Really, uh, it's a hack. And if it was a leak, why didn't they just dump everything on WikiLeaks and let the world sift through it? But this is the the world we're living in. Is James is where you have these staged, managed media events where there's a select few establishment media outlets that manage somehow and. In a way, I, I, it, I'm saying uh, Operation Mockingbird seems to have gone global. This is global consortium of selected journalists or elite media outlets that seem to be managing material that's supposedly a leak. But that's... Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And yes, of course, we're talking about the ICIJ, this International Consortium of International Journalists, or whatever that exactly stands for, that uh, is the organization that the Sedeutsche Zeitung turned to when they received this data dump from whatever, quote-unquote, whistleblower uh, dumped it on them. And uh, yes, of course, it has the usual. I've got the name of the whistleblower, James. Oh, His name is John Doe. Oh, okay. Excellent. Good lead. First let's name let's narrow that down. Last name, and that's D-O-E, by the way. Okay, go ahead. Well, <laughs> I do actually have some interesting information that no one I, I, I've seen has actually pointed out yet, except for one commenter on the Zero Hedge website, and not in the article, but in a comment. But we'll get to that in a moment. But of course, this ICIJ has the usual types of connections that we would expect from an organization like this that has the resources to marshal over 300 journalists from different countries around the world, over 100 major media institutions like The Guardian and what have you, the usual uh, suspects 
the, of the MSM. Uh, well, it has the usual funders, uh, the Open Society uh, Foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, um, Ford Foundation, these types of names, of course, we would expect. And that's, uh, again, it's not to, absolutely nothing surprising there. Although, even bringing up the idea that the ICIJ is an institution that is funded by such people is apparently the Q scary music conspiracy theory, according to WNYC's On the Media, which uh, took the time to single out me and my uh, the video that I did on the Panama Papers uh, earlier this week, where they were talking about the counterintuitive conspiracy of the Panama Papers, where they say, look, look at all this actual data we have of corruption, and these crazy conspiracy theorists are still not happy with it. They think there might be something more to this. Well, okay. well <laughs> and, and, and let me just stop you there. And counterintuitive conspiracies... Uh, let's go to the Brookings Institute. <laughs> They've released their counterintuitive conspiracy theory, and it says this. The Brook, according to the Brookings Institute, I think yesterday, um, this the the Panama Papers were created by Putin, and in order to create the impression that Russia was under attack and to blackmail those who weren't mentioned in the Panama Papers, uh, this would be U.S interests that were missing from this data dump so this is what brookings uh put out and i I saw this in another outlet as well so i i I think some of these mainstream organizations are some of the best sources of conspiracy theories these days (laughs) exactly right and interestingly that crazy conspiracy theory has been picked up by the msm for example i saw it in the independent which had uh some sort of uh headline about the not so crazy uh conspiracy theory about the panama papers and of course they're citing clifford g gaddy uh the senior fellow of foreign policy for the brookings institution so yes that objective uh uh paragon of virtue at brookings who are telling us yes it was all the russian which is, I mean, it's it's ridiculous on its face for a number of reasons, one of which is because of that interesting little nugget about John Doe that we have. Again, this is directly from the ICIJ, but no one that I've seen has pointed this out, again, except for this one commenter on Zero Hedge. It says directly on the ICIJ uh, press release about the Panama Papers that about two years ago, i.e. one year before the Panama Papers dump on uh, Sedeutsche Zeitung, Two years ago, there was already a whistleblower who had sold internal Mossack Fonseca data to the German authorities. But the data set was much older and smaller in scope. While it addressed a few hundred offshore companies, the Panama Papers provide data on some 214,000 companies. Interesting. So it's... It goes on to say that uh, in the wake of that data purchase, there were a number of raids that, and on uh, homes and offices that were conducted. For example, the Commerce Bank, uh, and also dealings with uh, uh, HSH uh, Nord Bank and Hyper Hy- Hypo Verins Bank. Uh, it, these different firms agreed to pay fines of around twenty million euros, respectively. So. This had already gone on, and then it goes it goes on to say that other countries have also require, acquired data from this initial smaller leak, among them the U.S., the U.K., and Iceland. Now, think about the implications of this. There had been a whistleblower a year before this newer whistleblower, or maybe it's the same whistleblower, but at any rate, from the same the same data set of information from Mossack Fonseca that sold that data, sold that data 
to the German authorities. They purchased that data from some whistleblower and then started raiding different banks and managed to get 20 million euros out of it. And they also, this data also ended up with the US, the UK, and Iceland, whether from a different deal by this whistleblower or maybe they got it from the Germans. But either way, this data was already sold from some anonymous, quote-unquote, whistleblower. I mean, think about the ramifications of that. Do you think that the the NATO Western intelligence agencies of Germany and the U.S. and the U.K., all of whom have been involved with this initial earlier leak, didn't put the resources of their intelligence agencies into finding out who this anonymous whistleblower was two years ago? And if they did, which they almost certainly did, unless, of course, it was an intelligence op from the beginning, which is also very much a possibility, at any rate, it becomes an intelligence op by proxy when they find out who it was and and, uh, basically make sure that there's no leaks to be plugged. And then the other implication of this is, I mean, by what authority does, does Germany or any other government go around dealing with whistleblowers, giving them money for it, for data that's leaked? I mean, technically, this could be a crime of some sort, depending. And, and what money were, was issued? How much did they pay? And under what circumstances? And then what about that data? Who has access to that data? What if there is, there, there are documents pertaining to German officials or US or UK or Icelandic officials that were in that initial data that have been scrubbed by the, who, the the agency that purchased this. I mean, that nugget of information has so many possible tangential meanings to it that have not been explored at all in the uh, the talk about this this newer leak. I think you've cracked uh, you've cracked you found a major crack there, James. I think because here's what pops up in my head. Firstly, chain of custody. So th- we've got an issue with the chain of custody potentially of this data. That's a major. I mean, that pretty much taints everything that happens after that. Okay, the other is due process. If if this was handed to German authorities and it had to do primarily with with Panama, the first step would be uh, in 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 the spirit of international cooperation to for German authorities to fly down to Panama and go to their authorities and say, guys, what what's going on? We've got this. You know, we're going to have to sort this out and maybe bring in some other. Uh, uh, countries or authorities to to do that, so uh, regulatory authorities. But um, so I think you, I think you're, you've definitely cracked something. There's a there's a line between Panama and Germany initially on this. So uh, so we could say uh, definitely Ger- German intelligence is involved. German government's involved. To what level is it at the source? We're not sure. But but I, what I found, James, is that all of these uh, Western agencies or the members of what's what we might call the Five Eyes. Or the six eyes, and that's not just from a James Bond film. This is real. They have in- interagency cooperation uh, on on so many different levels, not just surveillance and data, but uh, also in terms of uh, you know operate intelligence operations, basically. So th- there is these links between the CIA, German intelligence, MI6, uh, French intelligence, and they do work together. Uh, that's absolutely true. Absolutely admitted. I don't think there's any any doubt about that. Um, there are instances in which uh, I'm sure some of these agencies are, are backstabbing each other, but at the end of the day, they do certainly share information, and that should uh, that should be kept in mind. And we should again look into someone, some one of these intrepid 300 journalists should look into that initial leak and yeah. how it was sold and to whom it was sold, and for what price, and under what circumstances, and what data was in that initial leak, and how was that shared with other agents? I mean, again, that is an incredibly important part of this story, 
that is just not being paid attention so to. Te- technically, that's theft, and then trafficking the information for money with with government bodies is that kind of like. Well, especially because it's an international sale at that point. I mean, whatever whistleblower was was leaking this data is getting it from Panama and selling it to the German government directly. Again, what uh, under what circumstances could that possibly come about? Uh, even if the data was handed over to the German government, that would be one thing. And as you say, they, there would be cooperation with the Panamanian authorities. But the idea that it was sold to Germany and they purchased it, <laughs> again, it's just mind-blowing that this, uh, this little nugget has not been explored yet. But uh, I, I think uh, it, it seems apparent to me that there were intelligence agencies dealing with this at some level at some point. Again, whether that is the initial source of this information or whether they just got hold of it at some point and, and tracked down where it came from. At any rate, the uh, the NSA and the rest of you know the, the Five Eyes Network and Echelon certainly do know where this ultimately originated from. But at the end of the day, uh, I think one of the ramifications of all of this is not even going to be necessarily an issue about where the, the data came from, but how it's going to be used. And we've already, of course, seen all of the, I mean, the initial flood of reporting, of course, was all about Putin and Assad and, and Libya and other, you know, usual targets. But I think the more interesting story is ultimately going to be about the, uh, the Panama itself and the idea of tax havens and what do we do about this? Surely what we need is further international cooperation on cracking down on this. Who could possibly be against that? And, well, wouldn't you know it, this is already underway. In fact, two years ago, very quietly, uh, to not much ballyhoo at all, at the Berlin Tax Conference of the OECD, there was already an agreement signed by 51 different countries with 30 more waiting to come on board that are about to, just next year, are going to start sharing information at the individual bank account level amongst each other. It's called the Mutual Competent Authority Agreement, the MCAA, and uh, it's going to include account balances, interest, dividends, and sale proceeds from financial assets, not just on corporations, not just trusts, not just foundations, but individuals holding assets in any of the signatory nations. And it's all the major nations, of course, that you could imagine are, are signatories to this MCAA, except for countries like, well, Panama. Wow, wouldn't you know it? And now who's being demonized by in, in this leak and, and by proxy? It's Panama because of their vile secrecy laws, which when you go and look up the, the Panamanian corporate law and where it was modeled and how it came into existence, it, it, was, uh, the, it was created in 1927 and deliberately, specifically modeled on Delaware's laws, <laughs> which brings us right back to the central tax haven, the developing real tax haven of the world, the United States which itself is not a signatory to the MCAA and is uh, is quite boldly, defiantly saying it's not going to sign on to this agreement, which itself was modeled on the FATCA, FATCA, this global agreement that the U.S. is trying to strong-arm all of the traditional tax havens into, into being part of that will share all of their information with the U.S. So there's so much swirling around this that all points back towards the real tax haven for the real global elite, which is the United States. And a lot of it is hidden quite not, not so much behind veils of secrecy as uh, so much out in the open. That's what, and so another point I made earlier today in a, in a separate interview is that there's 
we're talking, okay, the Panama Papers, uh, Mossack Fonseca, to, there's billions of dollars, sure, that have been moved uh, through, you know, this law firm and assets have changed hands and so forth. But this, to me, is really small fry compared to what goes on with, let's say, Citibank or Citigroup or HSBC on a global scale. And there's... You know, where, where were these journalists, James, uh, with HSBC laundering huge amounts of illicit narcotic uh, uh, liquidity uh, that basically kept some of these banks afloat during the uh, financial crisis? Uh, where were they, um, you know, in, during the heydays of, well, I, I don't think anyone who's gone to jail for BCCI, uh, I don't know if anybody has actually. But um, we have that. We have a number of major banks. These are in New York. So the most amount of money is being laundered through New York and London and uh, Switzerland and, you know, maybe probably maybe Brussels. I don't know. But it's it, it's not in, in Panama. I mean, the, a lot goes through Panama, but you have huge amounts of deals uh, and illicit trade going through major U.S. cities and Western European cities. That's exactly right. The entire sort of offshore corporation law firm uh, industry in Panama is uh, equivalent to, so they say, about half a billion dollars. So, again, on the global scheme of things, uh, small fry. Uh, Perhaps in terms of Panama's economy, it's important, but on the global scheme, um, relatively small, especially when you consider, as you say, I mean, even just look at one of those aspects of those banking scandals you talk about, HSBC, convicted, convicted in 2012. This isn't speculation or theory. This is an actual conviction convicted in 2012 of laundering nearly a billion dollars of drug money for the bloodiest Mexican drug cartels. And uh, they are now, in in fact, in the process of being sued by the families of the victims of some of the uh, HSBC-enabled drug trade that was going on there. Uh, They're also uh, just received the largest fine in Swiss history for organizational deficiencies, that was the official quotation, that led to money laundering through the bank's Swiss subsidiary. But, of course, this is the same HSBC that federal investigators outright said uh, to, I believe, the New York Times back uh, a couple of years ago. They said that the bank was too big to prosecute. And then, of course, that turned into uh, uh, Attorney General Holder's famous, infamous pronouncement, too big to jail, which was about HSBC and banks like it, which he then, of course, immediately backwalked. No, I didn't. I didn't mean that. I mean, it's true, demonstrably, but I didn't. I didn't mean to say that. But of course, we then found out later on that the feds actually did help at, uh, HSBC hide its the drug money investigation from the press for years. So even the controlled, bought and paid for press that isn't going to print anything that it's not told to print, even so, they're still not even told. Uh, they're 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 actively prevented from finding out about this by the federal uh, investigators themselves, who are working hand in glove with these banks. And that's some real. Be- I mean, there's some real meat in that story. I mean, this this one, it's like I don't know. This this is like the love boat compared to like the other ones, like Star Wars. You know, the, this one is there's there's nothing illegal technically, in, at least from Panamanian point of view, or the British Virgin Islands. There's nothing illegal about going through these offshore companies. What it is is it's 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 a bit of eye candy. You've got Simon Cowell. You've got the uh, the the Sheikh from uh, the UAE, the president of the UAE, um, uh, Zaid Al Nayam. You've got all these other high profile 
Poroshenko, the candy man's even in there, uh, Russian mm-hmm. candy mogul Petro Poroshenko. Yes. And, yes. and so you, it, it makes for interesting, uh, the cousin of Assad and, you know, childhood friends of Putin. It makes for interesting reading, but when you really drill down there, there's no gotcha. There's no, where's the crime? It, and the point, I think the, I think this is my theory, James, my, what do you call it, counterintuitive conspiracy theory, is that Mossack Fonseca is a law firm that is basically set up by the CIA. In fact, Earnhardt, Earnhardt Mossack is the father of Jürgen, who runs the firm. He was a Nazi SS officer who was informing for the CIA after the war. He set up this firm. Okay, or I, that's what I believe, or ran it. And so it, ha, it already has CIA pedigree. So I think they were going to, there's something else that was going on behind the scenes. They wanted to close the book on this law firm. So they're saying, okay, before we close the book, let's see if we can, let's see if we can create a little havoc here. Because it could be the case, James, where there's another offshore um, uh, CIA playground that's being set up and it's just about, Hurting the elite away from Panama and sending sending the ones who are quote in the know into the next offshore uh, secret haven. Who knows where that is? It could be in the South Pacific or there's a, a num- number of well, candidates. Actually, I I have my own idea. It's not offshore at all. It's onshore. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this was in fact a Bloomberg report from earlier this year. The world's favorite new tax haven is the United States. Mm-hmm. It's, it is the U.S. is becoming the new tax uh, haven. And again, this is part of all of those agreements that we were talking about before. For example, the OECD, the MCAA with the 50 plus signatories that's coming online, sharing all sorts of personal bank accounts information amongst all these different states so of course they can crack down on the the evil tax evaders and oh by the way everyone else as well but uh, also I mean FATCA and all of those types of agreements all of which center around the United States but which the United States does not have to comply to so it turns out that Nevada is quickly becoming one of the uh, the tops top uh, tax even stops for the the world's global billionaires and as such, guess who set up a uh, wealth management trust uh, very recently in Nevada? The Rothschilds, yes. Rothschild uh, manage, uh, what, what, Rothschild Trust and Wealth Management? I, I forget the exact uh, uh, corporate name of it. Rothschild Trust North America LLC. So if you've got uh, is, money, go, go to Nevada, basically, if you've got Well, yes, exactly. And in fact, I mean, this is a, a direct quote from Andrew Penny of Rothschild and Co., who was giving a speech in San Francisco uh, to uh, prospective clients of this trust uh, recently, who said the U.S., quote, is effectively the biggest tax haven in the world. And then uh, there was some some leaked uh, <laughs> leaked uh, remarks that he was going to deliver at that speech that he ultimately ended up excising, but uh, he was going to say that the uh, U.S. lacks, quote, the resources to enforce foreign tax laws and has little appetite to do so, i.e., it's fair game for people to store all sorts of wealth in the United States and be shielded from all these international tax agreements that are being woven everywhere else. And interestingly enough, who shows up in elsewhere in this uh, Panama Papers in an interesting way? The FT, the Financial Times, I mean, Rothschild's pink edition there, has an interesting story about how Rothschild defends Poroshenko from Panama Papers. Oh. And it turns out that Poroshenko was using the Rothschild Group, the Rothschild Management uh, Wealth Management Trust, to set up his uh, his Panama Paper, his uh, foreign holdings. So they're, they're eyeball deep in this. And, of course, they're also setting up what I think is the real tax haven, which is right there onshore, not offshore. The, the real money is going onshore. And the reality is, James, that if you 
you've got money, you can afford the the law firm to do the paperwork for you. You can afford a chartered or a CPA in any country to do that side of things for you. If you've got money, you can move your money around and you can shield it through a series of uh, offshore uh, instruments and entities. The Cayman Islands, where people like Mitt Romney have laundered their billions for years, uh, and there's a number of these places that if you've got the money, you can afford to fly there and sign papers twice a year, things like this. Then if you have rich people know this amongst themselves. And so if you look at this story, it doesn't change anything. Um, and I, what you point out is very interesting in the United States on, you know, the offshore, onshore uh, U.S. havens. But it does, if you've got money, it doesn't really change anything because it's it, technically it is not illegal uh, to move your money around in offshore shell, shell companies and so forth. So it doesn't, it's, it's, it's inconsequential. In many ways, but it sends a message to the 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 feudal classes, the lower classes, that hey, you know, <laughs> you, you couldn't do this even if you wanted to, because and, yes, and you're right about all of that, and plus the fact that laundering money is in fact extremely easy through through very different means. I mean, there are all sorts of um, uh, fake transactions that can be set up through uh, vaporware. I'm sure people have heard about I mean, software can't really, I mean, how do you put a price on software? So you just put an extremely high price on it and pay the, pay the money through the system that way. Or uh, set up an insurance deal that, again, you insure for way more than something is worth and, uh, again, you can launder money that way. Or just go the Clinton route. Just give $250,000 speeches in front of banksters and you know, they can pass on money to your campaign through the back door or through the front door, really, because again, it's quite out there in the open. But the fake—it was worth it. And the fake loan, uh, the fake loan scam as well, where you could say loan somebody or, or a company money in another country, like Romania, for instance, and then you don't actually. Uh, they don't actually receive the money. Then they file a lawsuit and they get a local Romanian judge to sign off on an order that orders payment to a separate account in Moscow or in Prague or whatever. So the, the, there are these different international scams to basically shift money. And they're quite intricate if you if you check out some of them. They're, they're very creative. Yes, and a lot of them again difficult to difficult even once you pin it down to to really prove anything to really say that well you can't you can't transact for this amount for this type of transaction. I mean, a lot of these things again you can put whatever price you want on them, so you can just uh, move the money through the system that way, and that's how that's how the big money and smart money operates is through schemes like that, and they don't necessarily need these these law firms in shifty places with uh, shell companies in shiftier places. It it that as you say. A lot of it is eye candy, and it certainly does sound important, but when you go to look through it, there's not a lot of there there, and that's why uh, Cameron can release all his tax uh, tax documents for the last six years, and you're probably not going to find a lot of dirt in there because, again, I mean, it's, all the important stuff has been brought through the back door through other means. Yeah, and, and they are, there are, every country, uh, many countries have been forced to sign up to this, uh, U.S., uh, with Transparency uh, International Cooperation Program. And, uh, I know if you go to half the countries you go to them, if you're working in that country, you try to open a bank account, they will make you sign an IRS form, basically. And so you, you make a sort of declaration, there's a contract signed at that point that those banks are going to cooperate with, uh, the U.S. 
authorities, uh, if they come knocking, that they hand over all the information. So this is this is going on globally. So this is interesting. If you get into a cashless society, you get away from paper, and everything is done electronically through. And you need a, an account to do it. Uh, basically, you have full a fully globalized. Uh, I don't know what, what to call it, but just complete control and knowledge of every single penny that moves uh, on the planet from, at least from an, a U.S. government point of view. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it has to be stressed again how much strong arming is going on diplomatically behind the scenes to get countries on board with this. And uh, I mean, uh, again, that, that Bloomberg report is talking about how Cayman was slammed back in December and uh, closing things that people were withdrawing as they're starting to, to bring their, their regulations on board with this legislation. And of course, we know Switzerland has famously caved to FATCA and is starting to, uh, to open some of the doors of the famously secret Swiss bank account. So you have a lot of money coming out of Switzerland right now. So there, there's a lot of pressure going on in this, and Panama was one of the, the notable holdouts, and it's probably not going to be a notable holdout for very much longer. And you've got, uh, you know, you've got a number of great CIA, and, and I noticed the banks, the banks aren't getting skewered in, in all of this. They've picked a, a law firm, I guess it's kind of like a, uh, a symbolic patsy or something, but, you know, you've got tons and tons of banks that are processing these, and, you know, the, the Jane's Defense just released a report, I'm sure you saw it, um, detailing U.S. arms uh, deals from via Eastern Europe, from the United States, via Eastern Europe, into Syria, into the hands of terrorists, let's say. And uh, and there you have the dockets, you have the requisitions, you know, you know exactly what's going there. Some bank had to run that transaction at some point, and it would be an American bank or a European bank. or um, And so, again, the banks kind of waltz through these crises or these scandals. But you have a number of CIA banks in uh in panama bank i think banco de mexico you've got um the bank hoffman that was an interesting one bcci of course credit swiss is even involved it has been in the past in some of these uh shady cia uh money laundering scandals but i mean it's uh they, they seem to come off clean usually at the end of it and everyone's focusing on the uh the the, the, the politicians or some of these um, law firms and, and shell companies that no one works there. That's just a name on a placard. When you walk into Mossack Fonseca, they probably got a hundred names up on the wall in little brass plates. You know, other companies they manage, I guess. But yes, and and basically the the scheme is that you pay a thousand dollars for just a truly a shell, just a shell company. But you can pay extra to to get a sham director appointed through Mossack Fonseca that will hide the the actual shareholder and the, their identities. So. It's, I mean, the type of extortion yeah. basically going on for, for that. And again, I think the people who are using those services are probably at the lower levels of the ladder rather than the highest levels, um, except for, you know, a few uh, sh- sheep that are going to get thrown to the wolves. Um, and, you know, what happened in Iceland and things like this is going to be held up as the example of, the you know, the world changing information. But I think you're right to point out that the banks kind of have the exact opposite situation as uh, as is going on 
with regards to the, 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 the shell companies themselves. The shell companies are this incredible, you know, it's, it's catchy, it's interesting. People think, oh, you know, look, there's, there's a shell company in, an, in, in a tax haven. There must be something, you know, duplicitous going on where that's not necessarily the case. But when you think about the, the, the banks that have to move this money that actually are involved in the transferring of this, that's difficult. It's murky. You know, you actually have to do some legwork on that. And it's not, it doesn't have the same pizzazz. So it won't be reported. It's guaranteed not to be reported, even if, even if there weren't, you know, <laughs> banksters in control of the flow of information through the media. I, I think the media just wouldn't be gravitating towards stories like that because it's much less sexy. So the banks are shielded in a, in a number of ways. And it's, scandal like this. Kate, do, do, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a there's a kind of a link between the Panama Papers uh, and these so-called Panama leaks, but and the Operation Car Wash, which was this thing that uh, I think Lula, the former uh, socialist leader in Brazil, and Dilma Rousseff as well, they both got kind of snagged recently, or it was in the news anyway, I think it was in the end of last year, but in this kind of Operation Car Wash and this kind of like a data leak, this this actually tracks back as well to to Panama. And uh, and if you look at what happened, there's kind of a little bit of a fallout there in Brazil, and it also, I think, is going to have an effect on the political, you know, kind of a political outcome in terms of maybe who, who sweeps into power next. Uh, in Brazil could be a direct result of that so-called leak or that's, you know, Operation Car Wash. They called it, I don't know, that's translated from Portuguese, I guess. But um, That's right, yeah, and I've, I've heard that the uh, translation of that is not precisely accurate and doesn't give quite the right idea of that but uh, but yes I, I hope people will look into that i haven't done enough uh, work on that specifically to be able to pontificate it on on it um but there there is that connection that over 100 accounts uh, ha- uh, uh from the panama papers have been tied to petrobras and the the corruption that's uh, you know being exposed or exposed in in brazil but i heard a fascinating interview uh Scott Horton was conducting the other day, and I can't remember the name of the individual, but it'll be up on his archives from just a few days ago, where he was talking about uh, what was what's happening in Brazil as another example of this type of uh, color revolution-ish warfare that's going on right now, where this democracy kind of warfare that's happening, where you get protesters spilling out on the streets in rage over corruption, sometimes valid corruption that really does go on, like in places like Brazil, but for political purposes and for certain ends and it was a it was an interesting and compelling argument because i would be complained i inclined just based on what little i do know about the situation in brazil to think well it you know there is corruption going on so it all seems quite valid but i think there's uh there's very much room for for other uh other motives to be happening in something like that and for some of that that anger to be directed towards felling political enemies of people that uh, that want to get certain powers uh, certain people out of positions of power yeah, so economicpolicyjournal.com. So I've got this uh, uh, headline, uh, Panama Papers Limited Hangout, economicpolicyjournal.com. So it, according to this article here, uh, Brazilian angle, basically, Panama links are directly related because of the fact that Ramon Fonseca, who has a 50% stake, I guess, in Mossack Fonseca, was dismissed as president of the uh, Panamista party last month because of Operation Car Wash and was dismissed as president and uh, so this this operation this kind of uh, investigation targeted mostly ruling workers party in Brazil uh, so the Panama Papers were in fact 
a monster truck version of Operation Carpet. So they had Panama leaks in Brazil uh, uh, early in the year, last year. And so that was Operation Car Wash. So they, they're saying this is the child, if you will, of uh, the Panama Papers. So the Panama Papers is like a monster truck version of Car Wash uh, in, the, in a global sense. So that's up at economicpolicyjournal.com. If you can pop that into Google, folks, uh, and just put limited hangout Panama Papers, and you'll see some details there. We'll try to get into that later in the week. But um, from a media angle, James, I want to ask you, how come there's no U.S. media firms in the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists except for McClatchy News? So McClatchy, I think, is the only U.S. media newspaper or news outlet in this illustrious consortium, yet it's getting all its money from U.S. foundations and uh, an open society and the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Endowment, USAID. But there's no U.S. media outlets except for McClatchy. And I, I, I've, I, I once dug up some interesting stuff on McClatchy that I don't have at hand, but I, I, I do... I am interested in this organization and because uh, they do cover some odd angles, let's say, on a number of big breaking stories. And I often wonder whether it's uh, McClatchy itself is kind of, you know, an, a mockingbird type um, news outlet, you know. It certainly could be. I, I haven't done the kind of research to be able to, to verify that one way or another. But uh, but it, again, I think we do have to spend more time sort of looking at ICIJ and its its role in in not just Panama, but more generally in terms of controlling information on this level. But I think the other aspect of this that to me is fascinating that I don't see, again, a lot of people talking about when it comes to the media and the reporting of this is that we know that this information has been in the hands of these journalists, these hundreds of journalists for a year now, and they have coordinated this to to bring out the information at this time for whatever reason they've decided, you know, April to, to start bombarding us with this information. But we know that this information has been out there for a year. We know they've been working on it. But it does raise the big question mark of various other th- uh, revelations and things that have been going on. Who has been contacted about these leaks in, in terms of getting responses and tr- and starting to to sort this story out? I mean, clearly, uh, Russia and other you know other countries knew about this information uh, weeks ago, at the very least, when they started. Pre, pre-acting, not reacting, but pre-acting to the Panama Papers by saying there's going to be some information coming out and, you know, it's, it's all an op. Um, so we know that this information has been floating around and we know some people have been connected, uh, contacted in, in advance. Uh, who, uh, who has had this information? How have they handled the information? Uh, and again, you raised the, the, the specter earlier of Operation Mockingbird. We know, admittedly, the CIA has in the past had uh, uh, journalists directly implanted in the media, friendly journalists, uh, either on the payroll or simply friendly, that would uh, that would work in CIA interests or let the CIA run an editorial under their byline. Um, we know that that has gone on in the past, although they, you know, hand over heart, you know, two fingers in the air, pinky swear they'll never do that again. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But uh, so, I mean, that has to be a factor in a story like this. I mean, what are the odds that a 
intelligence-friendly journalists have, have gotten this, even if you're not the conspiratorialist sort, and even if you think the ICIJ is, you know, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth, clearly there is someone somewhere who has gotten hold of this that has passed it on to some intelligence agency at some point, I mean, even at, at that level, and none of this is being even, of course, even mentioned as, a, as, as something to take into account when we look at the reporting of this. So, there's so many different angles of this, and of course, all we get is you know, exactly what we would expect to get, you know, WNYC making fun of myself and others for even raising these questions. So, uh, again, the the counterintuitive conspiracy. So now, now it's not just that you have a conspiracy theory, it's that you don't have the officially sanctioned conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, um, <laughs> this, uh, it, it's pretty, I mean, okay, I, I'm not defending the Chinese government or anything, but I, I was very suspicious at how fast they came out saying there was this, this story cascaded across every single media outlet that China was clamping down, uh, state censors were, were moving into action to, uh, to muffle any talk of the Panama Papers, right? And then so I did a little searching, James, and I, I, I was looking for multiple sources, but I couldn't find multiple. I found one source of this, and this was the China Digital Times. And then so I'm looking at that and think most people who wouldn't bother to look or look it up would think, well, that's just an English language, a multi-international Chinese uh, issue thing. But no, this is run out of UC Berkeley by uh, uh, Zhao Quang and he is also involved with the Santa Fe Institute, which from my studies is very much linked with the U.S. intelligence uh, uh, establishment. He is also, he used to be vice chair of the World Movement for Democracy, which is funded by the uh, U.S. State Department, National uh, Endowment for Democracy. So he's a dissident who is basically holding court at UC Berkeley. And this could easily be anti-Chinese propaganda because it's only coming from this one source. So yes, how, yes, exactly. How, and, and that's so yeah. important when we look at a place like China. There, We have to know there is absolutely no media that comes out of there that is not slanted heavily in some direction. I mean, there's only really pro-government, uh, basically government mouthpieces, or there is this, you know, over-the-top propaganda that comes out of there against uh, against anything Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see you've got Want China Times and things like this on the sort of, you know, the Taiwanese side and the, the anti-Chinese government side, or you have the, the, um, the, the China Daily or things like that that are clearly just government mouthpieces, and you have nothing in between. So it, that's, I mean, it's extremely hard to get anything that you, you can really sink your teeth into out of China, except for occasionally when you get a little bit of the cover blown by by certain things. There was that uh, that huge story that uh, Bloomberg ran a few years ago about the real oligarchs of China and the the incredible wealth that they've amassed in their families and how that's uh, you know basically dwindled down through the generations. And uh, that incredible story and that incredible reporting that was done on it. Uh, ultimately ended up in a lot of uh, Bloomberg uh, reporters getting, you know, basically either fired or shoved out or quitting because of the way that that information was being handled. Surprise, surprise. So you'll occasionally get some interesting reporting, but it will be immediately clamped down on. Mm. Yeah, I think you said nothing in between. And, you know, the Guardian should be in between. And the some of these news outlets should be the in-between, but they're not. And I think I see this with the coverage about Syria and so many other issues that the the Western media seems to have gravitated into this kind of 
weird zone. And I include the Washington Post and the papers of record in the New York Times, where they they seem to be repeating what the important people are saying. So, and to hell with the facts. And they don't they are not even embarrassed. And Robert Perry uh, penned a very good article in the last week about this, about kind of the sad state of journalism, especially in the United States, where they got away with it in Iraq in 2003. And that seemed to be some of the same people are in the same positions that were, say, defending weapons of mass destruction, uh, including the editorial editor of the Washington Post. His name is Hyatt. I forgot his uh, his his last name or his first name, but... And now he's saying that uh, Obama uh, failed because he wasn't aggressive enough and he, he let Assad cross the red line. Meanwhile, uh, Assad wasn't launching chemical weapons attacks. That was being done by the uh, moderate <clears throat> rebels. Uh, but those facts seem to be lost on all these so-called journalists. And so they're running these narratives out in the mainstream on headlines uh, across CNN, across Fox, across ABC, even Charlie Rose, uh, you know, and all these sort of great legends of journalism. They, they, they all seem to be, I don't know, it is Mockingbird, actually, because Mockingbirds copy each other. And this is what we're this is what Exactly, we're yes. Yeah. And that's where the name comes from. And that's exactly the effect they intended to have. You only need a few real you know, leaders in, in any field to, to dominate the field as a whole because most people will just parrot what they hear. And that's exactly the case um, with regards to that original Mockingbird program. But uh, who knows how it's evolved uh, since it went underground or further underground. But, uh, but yes, I mean, you, you raised some valid points there. And uh, again, I think when we look at these, these questions of, uh, of uh, intelligence and media and how that's, uh, that's changed things, but uh, I think there's a couple of things going on. One is there is a demonstrable real change in, in reporting that is going on for a number of reasons. I mean, just the, the business model of journalism has changed and that that has had an effect and there is a reduction in actual investigative journalism at the expense of, you know, writing clickbaity headlines and, and uh, using advertising models uh, on, on the internet as a way of generating revenue and, and dwindling subscribers and you know, to, to print media and things of that nature has really changed some of the journalism. But I think to a certain extent, when I reflect back on my own view of it, I certainly do see that and I do think about that and how, how it didn't seem quite so blatant the type of propaganda that, uh, that that was happening, say, 20 years ago, as opposed to what's happening today. But I think, to a certain extent, that might just be a reflection of my own understanding of what was happening and our ability to access other points of view. Um, perhaps there's a sense to in which the media has to gravitate towards the, the propaganda nodes uh, even more closely because now people have access to to alternative points of view so you have to you, you can't uh, you, you can't uh, sort of balance those or at least make sort of you know gestures towards that anymore now you have to cleave very closely to authority to reinstill in the the dwindling public that is still actually listening to them the, the sense that only authority is uh, are figures are the the only places to turn when you're looking for information on things like this so i think there's a number of factors that lead up to the the, the, the sort of decline of journalism that we've seen startlingly, even in my own rather limited lifespan, and I think probably even more startlingly when you look at a longer lifespan. I, I agree with you on all that, and I also think, and I'm going to get your comments as well on this this idea, is I think there's a kind of an ivory, there's also kind of an ivory tower. Um, there is this kind of celebritization or this celebrity aspect to some of these mainstream journalists and anchors and people who have, you know, they host their own shows 
shows on on the big networks and also people who are calling this in like the washington post or, or the times and so forth that they're they're not accessible the, you know they don't run their own social media pages uh if if you work for a major network affiliate in the U.S., if you're on Facebook, you have to be on their Facebook. In other words, it would be your name and then the uh, call sign of the of the station or the media organization. So you can't be there as a as a private citizen. That's kind of some of the restrictions that they have for their employees, and uh, which I think is kind of an interesting thing in itself. But they, you know, so they can afford to get it wrong, is what I'm saying, and they don't really have to face the public. They don't have to engage in a real, you know, vicious debate in the comment section below the line. Um, when I, I wrote a piece one time for a major newspaper and I got into the scrum below the line and that was okay, uh, because maybe I wasn't so well known, but they just, so I can't, what I'm saying, James, is I can't afford to get it wrong. And I know you can't, we can't afford to get it wrong in the world that we run in. And so when you're talking about these issues as you, as you were in the previous, couple minutes you're qualifying what you're saying but we don't see the mainstream media or these so-called journalists who graduate from syracuse uh, um, from new york uh, university from columbia from all the top journalism schools they they're not doing any qualifications they're running basically with whatever the the the, the state department line is on something or the uh, john brennan cia line or you know, whatever the government's saying, basically, um, this is what they're running with. So they and, and they get it wrong. And then you'd think if they got it wrong, there would be some shame involved or you'd think that they would they could get fired. Or, you know, if you get something really wrong, like you insist publicly for months that Saddam is hiding his, his WMDs, like the editor of The Washington Post, you'd think you'd be fired. And I see he's still got the same job 15 years later. It's incredible. Right. Or, yeah, I mean, on the issue of celebrity journalists, I mean, are you telling me that Anderson CIA intern Cooper isn't <laughs> isn't a hard-hitting journalist or, you know, Wolf Mossad Blitzer isn't he's, he's, a hard-hitting journalist? I see Cooper in more movies now. Did you know, I yeah. don't know if you see any films, but they, they have these CNN little snippets that appear in, in films and major TV shows like uh, The Good Wife and others and Madam Secretary. So, so Cooper and all these people get a lot of screen time acting, basically. So they are acting. Actors, essentially, they're not journalists. I can tell you that for for a fact. In fact, if they ever, if they ever run out of crisis actors, then they'll they'll be the last ones to be be doing the crisis acting. You'll see Cooper with a bandage around his head and some blood dripping down his whatever, and he'll be the last he will be the last crisis actor when they finally run out. Well, say what you want about him, but his Q score must be right off the charts. So there you go. Yeah, he, yeah he, I'm sure he does very well on standardized tests as well. Uh, Not IQ, his Q score, his, oh. his watchability quotient or whatever they, they use in the business. So he's, yeah. you can't take your eyes off him. Yeah, so that it, it is a kind of sorry state of affairs, and uh, unfortunately we're going to have to deal with it for 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 some time in the future but the 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 last thing that uh, regarding the panama papers was they the icij released a video that was kind of like a childish kind of little instructional video of what the panama papers were and they even employed an actor with an eastern european kind of i don't know 
accent and then talking about Assad's cousin supplying fuel to the Syrian Air Force as if this was some sort of a crime. You know, meanwhile, we have the Turkish president's son basically fingered for uh, shipping oil, <laughs> getting oil from ISIS and selling it for cash. And he, I think there's a warrant out for his arrest. I think he's in Italy or he's just fled Italy. I can't remember. But that's like a real scandal. And and then I'll, I watched this video. It's t- in a way, the Panama Papers, it's a great distraction for a number of real things going on. What's happening in Yemen right now is the, is the story of the decade. I mean, we have not seen a war of aggression like this that Saudi Arabia is waging against Yemen. And with the full cover of the United Nations, because Saudi's on the, uh, the, the head of the UN Human Rights Council. They, mm-hmm. they probably bought their way on there. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, I mean, these are giant scandals involving the UN, Ban Ki-moon, um, cluster bombs being, you know, dropped on civilians in Yemen. And and then all they've got for us is the Panama Papers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly right. And, yeah, I, I hope pe- your listeners will go and watch that Victims uh, Offshore video that they have up on YouTube because it is it is cartoon. I mean, it's literally a cartoon, so it's cartoonish in that sense. But, it's I mean, it's just ridiculous propaganda that's presented so matter-of-factly and so succinctly that uh, basically Assad is the beginning, end, and middle of all evil that is happening in Syria. And so anything even remotely related to supplying the Syrian army must be just, I mean, it's, be, it's because Assad is crazy and just wants to kill his own people. So, you know, you're on board with hating him, right? I mean, it's, it, again, it is so childish. It is so cartoonish, and it really does beggar the imagination that people are falling for it. So I'm glad to see that there are, uh, from my perspective, there are more and more people who are not falling for it, and I'm glad to see that my Panama Papers video has already cracked the 100,000 view mark and is being targeted by WNYC and others, because uh, the, you know, real analysis tends to get out, and uh, the the lies and garbage that they put over uh, does not get a lot of traction. So, so you should give a big shout out to WNYC and thank them uh, for helping your video get to more people. So they've done exactly that. right. Yeah. So big shout out to WNYC. There's a shout poll at 21st Century Wire right now. We've got a, a shout poll up, which is: Are the Panama Papers a genuine leak? Or are they a limited hangout? We've already got a number of votes already in there. Uh, currently, 60% of our readers say that it's a limited hangout, uh, 40% uh, a genuine leak. So hopefully we'll get some more votes. Get in there and have your shout. Let's uh, we'll, let's hopefully get a few hundred more uh, by the end of today, and let's uh, have your shout. There's a number of other polls that have concluded as well. Uh, is Saudi Arabia guilty of war crimes in Yemen? Uh, overwhelmingly, Yes. And uh, is the U.S. helping or hindering the fight against ISIS? Uh, overwhelmingly, our readers say hindering. 80% say hindering the fight against ISIS, not helping. So have your shout. Get in there and vote. And uh, James, uh, before we go, um, we just want to say thank you for your uh, your timely analysis on the Panama Papers and getting that out so quick and also helping to uh, get the conversation uh, steered into what I think is a more productive direction. So uh, we do appreciate that, and we appreciate your time. Before you go, give us, uh, our listeners as well, a shout-out of uh, what you're working on now and uh, where you work, uh, your website, and so forth. 
Uh, yes, thank you for that. Well, I'm working on all the usual stuff, interviews, and uh, well, I have another podcast that I'm going to be working on, a follow-up to my Big Oil documentary that people might have seen a few months ago. I'm still working on that behind the scenes. So a lot more information spilling out all the time through CorporateReport.com. That is the one-stop shop for all of my work, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. Thousands of hours now of media, audio, video, articles that are there for free download that I hope people will use as an information resource, and I hope it's just the start of people's explorations rather than trying to be the be the be all and end all but that's uh, that's the site to go to corbettreport.com we've got a link to that on our show page just next to james's name on the show page you'll see a link to the corbett report so go ahead and check out like james said it's a great place to start uh, your uh, investigations and your explorations uh, as a reader and an interested citizen and consumer of news so thank you very much james corbett for your time and uh, for your contributions today thanks again for having me on i appreciate it there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, James Corbett, editor of the Corbett Report. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after these messages. I am your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stay right there. Better. Stronger. Faster. 